You are listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana. I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, visit patreon.com slash Justin Kana. I'd really appreciate it if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this episode, filling up all five stars on iTunes so more people can find us, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is a solo episode. That's right, it's just you and me. I'll be dishing up a curated list of articles, happenings, and headlines that I've been paying attention to over the past few days, and then season them with my perspective and opinion on these industry stories. If you want to go deeper, full show notes are available on justinkana.com slash podcast. Podcast. If you come across a story you'd like me to talk about, shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find it. Let's get ready to welcome your host for this episode, Justin Connor. What is up, folks? Welcome to 2019. If you didn't already know, I am Justin Connor. This is the Emulsion Podcast. It's great to have you here. This is episode 87. If you're confused, if you're coming from episode 86 on YouTube or 85 on YouTube and you're like, where did episode 86 go? That was actually a interview show with Joel Matheson of Wicked Good Grinders. It ended up um, only being an audio version because one, the video version was screwed up and some of the audio bits were... That was the show where the files got corrupted, if anybody remembers that one, so that only got published as an audio version. So, it's live. If you're interested in food trucks in any capacity, I highly, highly recommend it because there's a lot of nuggets to be gained from that, but this is the first solo show of the year. If you're new here, this is where I kind of go through a couple of industry stories, whether it's fine dining or restaurant or chef-related And I kind of break them down. I give you some facts, and then I share my opinion. So that's what happens on these shows. So let's start with some headlines. In what sounds like a weird headline, but it's actually pretty uh, accurate news, Dead Bird is apparently fine dining winter aesthetic, or at least that's what Eater has noticed. They published a piece where the subtitle says, Tasting menus around the world celebrate foul play with claws, heads, and feathers. Oh, shake my head. Foul play. Whatever, whatever you say, Eater. And that is pretty much where the article ends as far as interesting goes. Sorry to Hillary Dixler, but she basically gives the new car analogy. She's like, ever since Noma did a duck wing on their game menu, I've been seeing dead birds everywhere. And then she links to a bunch of Instagram posts from other people where they go out to eat and get like a head-on squab as part of their tasting menu. And she says it's 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 part of a trend. And maybe she's right. Maybe people were influenced by seeing Noma's game menu. But if you're new here and you're wondering, why in the world would people want to show off the feathers of a bird or the head of a squab? And yes, it's partially for shock value sometimes, but it's also to show off the freshness of the product, right? It's basically saying, look, we got the whole animal in here. We put a lot of work into preparing it like this, as opposed to being like, yeah, that duck came in a bag frozen from the global food supermarket, right? So a lot of times with most animals, fish included, the eyes, the uh, head, the fur or the feathers, if it's, you know, not a fish and the innards go bad first. So to showcase it is more or less like showing it off weird flex, but okay. 
Thomas Keller has opened a new restaurant in Yontville. It's called La Calenda, and it is a Oaxacan-inspired casual spot. Didn't really see that coming. They also specialize in wines from California and Mexico's Valley of Guadalupe and Santo Tomas Valley. Plus, they also have 30 different mezcals on the menu. It is definitely capitalizing on the cravings that so many people have that were left unsatisfied based on Chef Keller's current offerings. He's really big into uh, American and French food, but not so much on the Mexican side of things. The, the, the weirdest piece, which Eater also comments on, is the hushed nature of the project. He's been very vocal about his surf club restaurant and the tack room, uh, two definitely larger scale projects, one in Miami and one in New York, but this one didn't seem to nearly get as much press. So it's kind of hard to say if this is a unique partnership between Chef Keller and somebody else, and they're kind of using the TKRG resources, um, or if this is a case where Chef Keller wants to test this or kind of put one of his staff members out on their own. I know that when you have people that stay at your restaurant group for, you know, 10 plus years, they kind of want to expand outside what they've been doing uh, for the past decade or so. So sometimes he will put them on in that way, and that's really great for him because then he gets to broaden his his restaurant empire. So the menu break basically breaks down into appetizers, salads, tamales, tacos, enchiladas, larger plates, sides, pastries, and there's even a kid's menu right on the main page for Los, Choqui Los Chiquitos is how they uh, categorize that area of the menu which is adorable. So if you want to check out the full menu or read more, it's linked up as always in the show notes. Next up, we covered Nick Kakonis's article on Talk a few weeks ago. That was, of course, his piece that he published on Medium. So I thought I would give you their competitors. I, I, I struggle to call it a rebuttal, but Ben Leventhal also published a piece on Medium called Resi and the Restaurant Industry's Technology Revolution. And I knew it was going to be a fluffy PR piece from the fact that it just, at the top of the article, it says it's just a three-minute read. So it's not like he's really going in-depth on anything here. But he does talk about a few things that I think should be on your radar. So if you choose to use Resi as a service, they give you the option to allow bookings straight through Google and Instagram right out of the box, which a couple other services offer, but they'll charge you more for it. Which So it's really great for reducing friction for the guest. And if you're a restaurant who is even remotely interested in marketing in 2019, being able to market straight through Google or Instagram without having to click through to a website and then going on to a mobile um, reservation processing uh, service, I think that's a really, really good feature that they offer. They also do live two-way SMS communication between restaurant and guest, and they also do automated confirmations with that service. So they share the statistic that it has led to a 3.4% no-show rate across Resi-powered restaurants. They also offer ticketing and a weird service called Notify, which apparently offers what they're calling dining spontaneity and also allows restaurants to fill last-minute seats quickly, end quote. So... I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work because uh, a lot of, um, like, if you're going to a theater, they have a couple different options as far as, like, what you can see at any given time. But with restaurants, sometimes you're not all that in the mood to be spontaneous. So, 
again, weird flex, but okay. This is a super buttoned up piece that he wrote to basically say, we got this, guys. Um, I'm personally not reading that much into it. I mean, it literally has one sentence that uses the words operational dexterity, marketing flexibility, and performance instrumentation all in the same uh, sentence. So definitely uh, not for the consumer. But all at the same time, uh, do, do, do I think this makes Resi obsolete in any way? Absolutely not. I think every single, like for every single fine dining tasting menu or pop-up that talk uses to uh, kind of capitalize on resi can partner with the you know hipster lunch spot in la and kill it through instagram marketing right i don't think that one has to lose for the other one to win I've been doing a bunch of research for my trip to L.A. Uh, When I go to L.A., I want to eat at as many restaurants as possible. And it seems like every single spot that I want to eat at in L.A. runs off of Resi. So don't underestimate the power of uh, market share in kind of a bump in community. As per usual, the uh, usual outlets came out with their lists of best and worst plus predictions for 2018 and 2019. So I want to share a few of those as the the year kind of flipped, the calendar flipped. And as for what writer Adam Platt wants to leave behind in 2018, he his list includes Little Gem Lettuce, Pasta Madness, Oversized Dining Counters, Obscure Dining Neighborhoods, Wagyu Snobs and their $100 Sandos, Faux Japanese Cocktail Bars, and Batarga. Yeah, I can see that. Like, I feel like a few of those um, things like pasta and obscure dining neighborhoods are never going to go away as long as, you know, cities continue to be cities and humans continue to enjoy pasta. Like the first the first one, pasta is just way too popular. And with rising rents all across cities in the country, like what do you want restaurants to do? You know what I mean? And by the way, when did like what did Little Gem Lettuce ever do to Adam Platt? I think at Little Gem Lettuce is delicious. He must just uh, be exhausted with salad options. As far as the ones that I can agree with, I'm not personally trendy enough to be over Wagyu Sandos and Japanese cocktail bars quite yet. I would rather just save my money to actually go to Japan, which is 100% the plan this year. But uh, is anyone else sick of these 2018 trends? Please let me know. Any of the ones that Adam Platt suggested? Uh, moving on to what Eater wants to see in 2019, or at least what their uh, contributing writers predict will happen. These are always cheeky and funny, and I like to cover these on the show. Um, here's a few that I would personally get a kick out of covering on the podcast that were suggested. Uh, Fidei Keto Salad Burrito Fast Casual Spot Only Accepts Bitcoin. It's a funny headline. Uh, the Great Cauliflower Rice Shortage Continues. Another critic declares food in X city is better than New York City, and then in parentheses, but New York City continues to not care. Thought that was great. Uh, Bad dude does bad thing, suffers no consequences. And then the last one is female chef accused of misconduct, also because turns out this industry is a shit show no matter what your gender. Ha ha. I think that was a, those last two were definitely dark, but that seems to be the trending direction. Is it just me or have we fizzled out a lot of the uh, technique-based trends in cooking? I didn't really see that many on anybody's uh, predictions list. It just seems like people are much more ingredient conscious now as far as what they want or will order as opposed to how it's prepared, which I think is going to be a huge white space for technique-driven chefs to kind of swing the other way once the trend reverses, right? So I list a couple examples like uh, matcha or wagyu or insert ingredient on a menu now, and it will get attention. But in the same way that people six or seven years ago realized that just because it's spherified doesn't make it delicious, 
as things get watered down, I feel like uh, people will start to jump on the trends. So like for, for that matcha example, right? All it takes is for a couple people to have a less than stellar matcha experience, and then that loses its luster. So the exclusivity factor goes down, and then it doesn't become as, as popular. And I think it's just a fascinating thing to watch, and I'm going to continue to observe it. Uh, last up here, a gear article that I actually respected. It is called, quote, if you want a good knife, ask a line cook, end quote. And it's, like I said, it's an actually good piece. It asks actual line cooks what chef knife they use. And then the recommendations range from uh, brands like Gleeston to Togiharu and Global to Wusthof. And one dude even says, I don't buy a chef's knife. I buy a cleaver because I've worked with so many people that uh, prep Chinese food. And they say that that's the only thing that you need. I use uh, my cleaver and my scissors. So it's a really uh, cool insight instead of um, just kind of like watering it down and making it super vanilla. So that is, of course, linked up if you want to check that out. I think it's cool that they highlight line cooks in that way. Enough with the headlines. The main stories come next. But uh, first, today's beverage from a brand that we haven't featured yet. This is from um, Simple Truth Organic. It's just like the uh, the big box uh, version of LaCroix. It's uh, mango grapefruit flavored seltzer water, and it's really weird for me to say this. Um, I don't know if it's because it's organic or whatever it is. It just doesn't taste as good as LaCroix. Like, the flavor isn't in as intense, which is weird to say because it's not even that LaCroix is that intense. It's just like this falls super flat. But I bought a case of it because I want a, a case, like a box. It was like eight cans. And so I'm trying to rifle through it because it's not really that good, but I'm going to, I got to get it out of my fridge. So this is normally the part of the show where I thank the Patreon fam, the select number of amazing folks that listen to the show or watch any of the content and put forth their hard-earned cash to support this. And instead of highlighting anyone specifically, partially because there weren't any new patrons this week, uh, I wanted to share how you are literally helping to improve the show, the ones that support so, this is actually the first episode that I am not editing. Yes, I have outsourced this edit to a freelance editor, and that takes so much off my plate, and it guarantees that Thursday upload. Yes, if you've missed the news on Twitter, I launched that this week. Thursdays are podcast days, without fail. An episode will always go up. So, this is currently Monday. Is it Monday or Tuesday? Um, I am recording it now. This will get shipped off to a uh, freelance editor. It will get edited, sent back to me, and then I will upload it. So, I'm getting into the groove of that, and... Uh, saying it for the first time in 2019. Thank you. Thank you for your support. And if you want to see more better looking content in 2019, I would really appreciate your support. You can learn more about that on patreon.com slash Justin That is also, of course, linked up for your convenience. So first up, industry style. I wish I could give a shout out to whomever wrote this. Uh, maybe those of you that uh, the, the internet fam can help me out with with some of this stuff. I am 99% sure that the place that I got it from was on Twitter. I go th through so much content. I'm, I'm not 100% sure where I got this piece, but I saved it to my notes app as a JPEG photo, which makes it even that much harder to source on where I got it from. It doesn't have an author or a publication date. It's, it's, it's not even like... Uh, uh, from a notes app it's it looks like it was typed into text edit and there was there's a few grammatical 
errors about it as well that makes me think that it was just someone going on a rant on the internet and then it got published and got a bunch of retweets. But it talks about the hospitality industry in the UK specifically and I want to read you a few lines from it. So if this dings in your head and you're like, I know who posted that, please message me so I can give credit in the show notes where credit is due. Um, the full piece in its JPEG form is going to be linked up on justinconnacom slash podcast in the show notes uh, so you can read the whole thing because I can't share it as a link to an article because I don't have the link. I don't know where it originated from. So if you want to read the whole thing, that's there. So it talks about tipping. It says, quote, why should employees be at the mercy of guests' generosity in this way? Who determines what is appropriate pay for service and what of those guests who decline to leave any tip is as their right? Service is discretionary, though. Service is discretionary, though, isn't it? Did you think your waiter... Did your waiter think it was discretionary to serve you in the first place? Sorry, this is a very clearly uh, English written. My grammar is not the same. Uh, it also talks about no-shows. It says, quote, Many restaurants find themselves with empty tables on otherwise busy evenings, not because of lack of demand. In fact, they may have spent much of the day politely declining requests for a table that evening due to being fully booked. However, it turns out the person who booked that table of four at 8 p.m. on Saturday night decided to not bother turning up, end quote. And then it dives deeper into practices like holding credit cards or taking res reservation deposits and how that will often receive backlash on sites like Twitter, uh, TripAdvisor or Yelp. It continues to say, quote, a cultural shift is what is needed for progress to be made. But how do we change something as immense as culture? These values and behaviors have been embedded in our society for hundreds of years. It will be a long, hard slog. Who will take responsibility for this? The change needs to happen in deeper society, but it can only come through awareness and a greater understanding of the value of hospitality. You cannot put a price on good hospitality. It is time that everybody realized this, end quote. Mic drop. Just kidding. Uh, let's dissect this a little bit because it's a topic that I've been marinating on for more than five years now, ever since I came to the crazy realization that, whoa, this fine dining restaurant that I'm working at doesn't really actually make that much money on this $295 tasting menu. So... The person who has the most insight on this, the one that I'm going to paraphrase the most with, is not actually a restaurant person. At least uh, the, the, the thing that this person, whoever wrote this, is talking about. It's an author by the name of Seth Godin. And when it comes to all things culturally relevant, he says it best. And he has podcast episodes all about tipping and culture shifting. And I highly recommend listening to any of his stuff, his podcast specifically. It's called Akimbo, if you ever want to go deeper on any of those topics. He's very, very insightful on some of these things. And he sees the macro picture as opposed to kind of being head down, uh, hospitality focus. But what he effectively suggests is that tipping is bullshit, and it doesn't make sense, and I also agree with this. However, it cannot come, at least in my opinion, not tipping cannot come at the expense of not caring at the same time, right? And just for reference, one more thing on Seth Godin stuff, his definition of culture is people like us do things like this. So if you can it starts as a small community and then it radiates outwards. That's basically his uh, his gist on culture. So back to to, to my point is is um, tipping not tipping cannot come at the expense of not caring. Somewhere along the line, we as a culture decided that it made a lot more sense to hail a stranger's car and get into it and have them drive us from A to B and let us leave without swiping a card through a slow ass machine or fumbling over cash. Right? Sound familiar? And at first, it seemed crazy. It was only for tech bros in San Francisco, but now your mom does it. Now your grandpa asks you to call him a lift, right? And 
it wasn't that getting a cab was the problem. Uber and Lyft came with more solutions on top of that, right? The cab companies complained that the margins sucked. I'm sure that they had their little meetings and their little rants where they talked about how car maintenance was expensive and parking was a hassle and supply and demand wasn't easy to forecast and being the middleman sucks because it can lead to problems on both sides, the consumer side and the the uh, service provider side. But none of them, none of the cab companies invented Uber. And on the flip side, right, if you go to places like New York City or Vancouver, real cabs still exist. They aren't completely obsolete. And no one is arguing that ride sharing didn't completely disrupt the industry. But to equate this back to the restaurants, we know it's a problem, right? Like we as restaurant people and hospitality professionals know about all these problems, right? But I've said it before and I will say it again. It comes down to communication and standards. The reason that Danny Meyer had such, you know, applause and articles written about him and great press when he did away with tipping is because he leaned so hard into that change. He wasn't shy about it. He didn't put to, he didn't put down on the last line of your check right when you get the bill, "Oh, by the way, service is included." Right? He was on national news doing interviews about all Union Square hospitality restaurants adopt this policy. I'm sure there was like signs in the windows and, and all this stuff. And it was going to be great, right? Now, one can argue the effectiveness of his decision to take away tipping. And there's also been articles that talk about that. But I think of it like this. When is the last line you've heard? When is the last time that you've heard this line when you go out to eat? Or maybe it's even at your restaurant, this line. Uh, have you folks ever been here before? No? Okay, cool. The menu has smaller dishes and appetizers on the left side, larger plates on the right side, just below that, uh, and our food is meant to be shared amongst the table, right? We've heard that so many times because it takes time for a shift in culture to happen like that, and it, it took a shit ton of communication. The fact that, like, all of us know what that line sounds like means that it's been ingrained over time because chances are if you've been out to eat for 30 years and getting diner style plates, you're going to be pissed off if you order the hamachi for $13 and you get six slices of crudo, right? Like that's why that style of communication had to be invented because somewhere along the line, they decided that we want to shift the culture and this is how we're going to do it by being overly communicative and being super confident in what our standards are. So it also has to stop being the customer's problem, at least in my opinion. It's not their responsibility to keep you accountable in running your business, right? Like you want to pay your staff a great wage and have really a really solid location and use quality ingredients and use handmade ceramics? Cool, because this is how much that's going to cost per month right? We literally talked about it the other day about Jessica Largi and her new spot. She's like, I want all these things, but I don't know if it's financially feasible yet. I'm going to try, but I want all these things and I don't know if it's going to make sense on paper and the P&L at the end of the month, right? I think we all want so many of those things, but when it comes to stacking up the numbers, does it actually make sense? I think about when I when I talk about these things and these standards and experiences that I've had that show the example of going the other way. I think about a meal that I had in Paris last year at this place called Import Export Cam. It was basically two chefs from Australia, one bartender and one server a four-person staff. That was it. And there was 45 seats in the dining room. When I counted, I literally sat there in the dining room because I was like, wow, not, there's not a lot of staff here. And there's a lot of guests here. So I sat there and I did the math as we were having dinner. And the menu was all a la carte. 
there is no dessert menu. We tried to order dessert menu when we tried to order dessert when we were there. They were like, nope, we don't do dessert. And the napkins were literally travel packs of Kleenex that they just set on the table when you uh, sat down. They were like individually plastic wrapped. You unwrap and and the Kleenex was your napkins basically for the entire evening. And the food was delicious. It was Korean and Southeast Asian inspired food. And no one like no server stopped by our table to tell us a story about how the chef was inspired by cooking with his mom, right? They literally dropped the food and they were unapologetically themselves. And the best part was it was packed. Like I'm sure that it is still packed. And because they understood that, yes, in Paris, there's a market for hipster, almost like non-caring, but still really delicious ethnic food at reasonable prices. And I have no doubt that they made a killing that night that we ate there because there was not a lot of stuff to pay for. And they were no doubt bringing in a ton of revenue because we drank, we drank a lot and we ordered almost the entire menu because the menu was so small. They didn't have 26 options. They had like seven to 10 dishes. So we ordered like six or seven dishes. And that quote comes to mind so hard when I tell stories like this. The the easiest way to fail is to try to please everyone. So if you're thinking, oh, this is going to suck when I uh, tell people that I don't have poutine on my menu because I hate disappointing people don't serve poutine on your menu, right? Like you're going to like, in order to do something special, you have to like disappoint a couple of people. And I think that a lot of this comes from um, a a very ego driven place. And yeah, that's just kind of like my rant on that more or less. But will people, when will people come to terms with what they don't do and stand behind it? I guess that's more or less my question. Um, You know, being able to say like, I apologize, sir, we don't have fresh orange juice available. Can I offer you a sparkling blood orange soda? Right? Like, it, it it doesn't be, saying no doesn't have to come at the expense of good hospitality. And I guess that's kind of like where I want to leave it. This article that I've ranted uh, very so far away from also says, quote, salaries will remain low as long as prices do, end quote. And I 100 percent agree with this. If you watched my keeping track of the numbers video and as with most hospitality based businesses, these costs are a fixed percentage of your costs. Right. So in other words, if you bring in more revenue, you're going to pay more for staffing because you need to keep up with all of that work. And if I had to guess, the influx of either robotic work or an app-based service will disrupt all of it. And I think about it like this, and someone can take this idea and run with it if they want, but this is like something that's been in my head, and you can take it for what it's worth. There's, you know, you walk into a restaurant, there's a really elegant stand at the front of the restaurant. Picture like where you would normally see a host or hostess stand, but there's a human standing there. Just like when you scan your boarding pass to get on the plane, but it's like an elegant, uh, futuristic, modern looking stand. Maybe there's like wood involved and they welcome you to the restaurant, like super hospitable. They ask you and your guest to scan in, right? You've provided all of your information, your name, you made a reserve, if you've made a reservation or not, it's got your credit card stored through Apple Pay or whatever you use, all your allergies, all your aversions, any, um, and then you immediately like, When you scan in using your phone and this little kiosk, the stand, all that information is then relayed to the kitchen. So then whoever is expediting can then see all that information of, oh, Karen's here. You know what I mean? And this is what we need to know about Karen. And because that kiosk shows the restaurant layout because it integrates with their POS system, it knows exactly where to put that couple that just scanned in based on their average time spent at a restaurant because Again, you've been scanning in to restaurants with your phone for like three months and it knows how you like to go eat out. And then the person at the stand says, table 4L will be your table tonight. Please enjoy. And then you look at your phone and then boom, 
it shows you exactly how to get to table 4L. And it says, based on your typical dining time and, and what the kitchen workload is right now, we think this meal should take 57 minutes. Would you be interested in staying longer? And then you say yes or no. And then the person at the stand, basically the algorithm knows, oh, this table is probably going to be here for an hour and a half. This is how we're going to plan the seating. And if like there's a wait, you can see on your phone, oh, this restaurant has a wait, right? Then at the table, there's a scanner built into the table somehow. And you and your guests just go ahead, you peruse the menu through the app, right? Instead of the restaurant having to pay to print menus and having to pay someone to go and give you menus, it's all there on your phone, right? You decide what you want to order. You have a conversation with the person you're talking to. You're scrolling through the app. You're like, do I want to order this? Do I want to order that? And then just like you would do on Postmates or Uber Eats, you load it all up. And then somewhere during that time that you're perusing the menu, a real human comes to the table, tells you the story of the restaurant, talks about the food or the space. They provide that human hospitality. I'm not saying that human hospitality has to go away. I'm just saying, like, roll with me on this, right? Then you know what you want to order. On that scanner that's built into the table, you scan your order in. There's no, like, stupid communication of, like, audibly telling someone what you want to eat. Uh, they already have all your allergies and aversions stored in the app, so you don't have to communicate that in any way, or no one has to feel uncomfortable. Uh, th th there's no risk of, uh, oh, this one looked like a two on my notepad, right? And then, again, they've got all the info on you, so Karen likes her Thai food at four-star spicy because she put that in on the app. No wasted communication. And then the app says, would you like to finish your experience? Yes, scan your phone, everything's paid for, server gets a ding, that table four is leaving, go ahead and say goodbye, say thank you, provide that hospitality, the guest walks out, and then they have the option to leave feedback, review the place, share it with their friends, etc. And I'm seeking $500,000 in exchange for 3% of my company. Just kidding. But do you see how this like little petty complaining about these age old traditions keeps us spinning on the hamster wheel, right? Like it needs, we need to stop being cab drivers that are complaining about how we're going to increase our revenue, picking people up from the airport during the holidays and start thinking about how we can offer an experience like Uber to our customers and our guests. So that is my rant over on that topic. Like I said, if anybody wants to take this app uh, hardware idea and run with it, I'm looking at you, Amit Levy. Uh, I'm happy to talk more. It's something that I've thought about a lot. It's not going to be me that puts it in place, but something like that is an industry disrupting uh, service. And it's something that's been in my head for ages, but I'm not smart enough to put it in place. But I 3000% see it being a game changer for restaurants. But again, in the same way that not every restaurant uses talk for reservations, there will always be the old school restaurant model. It's just once a paradigm shift shifting solution comes along, I think a lot of people will come along for the ride as well. So I hope you enjoyed that little rant and that new idea. If you have thoughts on it, please let me know. Or if you have someone that's smart enough to build it, I would also be interested in chatting with them about it because I think there's a lot of potential and it can make a lot of people happy and solve, solve a lot of problems. So next up, everybody's favorite penny-pinching food writer, Ryan Sutton, wrote a piece called, quote, How to Order Caviar Without Going Totally Broke. The subtitle being, Remember, Expensive Doesn't Necessarily Mean Better. And if the fact that this piece is part of their Life Coach series isn't enough to make your eyes roll and you're still here, let's please get into it because there's a lot of people who know how I feel about Ryan, Ryan Sutton's food writing. So for those of you that don't know, and this is actually decent information, 
Quote, Iranian caviar is tough to get in the U.S. thanks to trade sanctions, but these days caviar can also be had from Uruguay, Israel, China, Germany, France, as well as the United States with prominent aquaculture farms in northern in California, North Carolina, and Florida. The largest wild sturgeon can take as long as 25 years to start producing eggs, and harvesting eggs differs from, say, hen production. Putting, more, putting it more bluntly, the fish must be dis- dispatched with. No-kill caviar is still a work in progress, end quote. And oh dear God, his first step on how to order caviar without going broke is step number one, expect to spend a lot of money. Okie dokie, Ryan, I'm out. Thanks for the history lesson, right? What a silly excuse for an article. He says, quote, caviar service rarely costs less than $100 in a restaurant. La Bernadin asks $220 for an ounce of Ocetra a la carte, while Danielle charges nearly $400 for 50 grams, end quote. And don't worry, it gets better. Step two is, quote, consider eating your own caviar at home, end quote. Adding, quote, let's be frank, restaurants don't do much to improve caviar. They buy it, open up the tin, and spoon it into a serving vessel alongside some bellini and creme fraiche. The most complicated part is how much to mark it up. Cha-ching! Most of the good roe you try in restaurants is purchased from Petrosian, Caviar Roos, Paramount, or other suppliers that also sell their diverse wear wares at small retail counters, where individual customers neither pay tax, caviar is exempt from tax in New York City, nor tip. Think of it this way, would you rather shell out $200 to eat caviar at a fancy restaurant, or buy the same product from Petrosian for $150? Of course, this doesn't mean you, should eat, eat, you shouldn't eat roe out on the town, sometimes it's nice to celebrate a night out, end quote. Seriously? Like, you know what you can also do? You can buy a used airplane for the cost of a business class international flight, right? But the pilots don't do that much fancy stuff to the airplane anyways. So, you know, why would you want to do that? And then you can fly, where, like, if you buy your own plane, you can fly wherever you want. Stop making everything about the cost, Ryan Sutton. We are entirely aware of the fact that that bowl of pasta only costs the restaurant like $1.83, but it costs $11 on the menu right? That's not the point. The point is that when you go to a restaurant that markets towards those with disposable income who want to experience luxury, you are saying, here are some preserved eggs from a fish that had to get killed in order to harvest these and it had to live for 25 years. And oh yeah, we also prepared these amazing accompaniments that we think will elevate the experience of enjoying this really special product. Meanwhile, Ryan Sutton is in his sweatpants wondering how that old tin of caviar in his fridge is and if he should eat another three plain spoonfuls or not, right? Reason number three of how to order caviar without going broke is, remember, expensive doesn't necessarily mean better. The absolute worst thing you can do when ordering caviar is to pick the most expensive row for no other reason than it just being the spendiest. Just as a 1954 Petrus isn't necessarily better than a fresh, sprightly German Riesling, a $500 tin of Kaluga won't automatically make you happier than a little $10 jar of trout roe. Approach caviar like you would wine, not by price, but by style. It's not about finding the best caviar. It's about finding what you like. If you're a Blue Point oyster lover who wants the intense brine and sometimes metallic flavors, a good white sturgeon roe from California might be for you. If you want something milder, a golden Ocetra might be more your speed. In fact, I found that some of the most expensive roes are also clean and neutral tasting. It's also hard to tell you're eating caviar at all. Tell the waiter or manager whether you prefer something buttery, nutty, or briny. End quote. Please stop. 
You aren't comparing apples to apples. A 1954 Chateau Petrus is an aged Bordeaux. German Riesling is German Riesling. I would hope that the Petrus is not fresh and sprightly. Look, look, I get it. Not everyone grew up eating caviar, so it's insanely difficult to know what you like ordering from a foreign or expensive restaurant or, you know, any sort of menu. But this article could have provided more value by being titled, A Cheap Food Writer Explains How to Figure Out What Caviar You Might Actually Like, Including Tasting Notes, right? Sea Eater, it's still clickable for millennials, but it's less pompous. This guy is just, he's trying to relate not being able to pay rent while also saying, in the same article, he says, just the same, Savruga or Berrier aren't typically as firm as its, I'm going to try to say this, Guldenstadeti or Kaluga counterparts, basically comparing different varietals of caviar, different species of caviar in their Latin names. Tip number five is know how many G's to order. Yes, he uses the, 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 the term G's. This guy is exhausting. G stands for grams, folks. Know how many G's to order. Tip number six, don't get too worked up over the accessories. While also in the same paragraph, he says, ask your waiter for a pearl spoon if it's available. So don't get too worked up over the accessories, but if they've got a mother of pearl spoon, you should try to snag that. Tip number seven, which I can actually understand in his defense, he says, don't get hoodwinked, citing the fact that, quote, most waiters and chefs know little about the caviar they're serving. This is partly due to the fact that caviar purveyors invent fake names so that when you Google them, only one brand comes up. For example, Petrosian calls most of its high-end rose Sar Imperial, which actually means nothing. If you want to know precisely what type of caviar you're getting, learn the Latin names and talk to your server about it. If they can't answer, ask to see the tin. If they can't provide the tin, don't order the caviar. End quote. And this is actually a practical tip. I often look at uh, wine lists, and if the varietal or the grapes aren't listed, I will ask the server. And if the server doesn't know, they will normally send a psalm over. Because especially in 2019, wineries and winemakers really get off on doing eclectic blends of things. So just because it says it's a red wine from Napa, it doesn't mean that it's a blend with Cabernet in it. Does that make sense? Sometimes it's good to ask these questions to make sure you're getting exactly what you want. Tip number eight, eat your caviar while it's at its optimal freshness. Quote, caviar can theoretically last in the fridge for up to a month, but that's only if it's stored at its proper temperature, roughly 28 to 34 degrees. Problem is, most regular refrigerators don't get that cold. The appropriate workaround is to keep the caviar tin in a pouch surrounded by gel packs, typically supplied by the store at no extra costs. Those who omit this step will find their fish row bleeding oil like ink from a leaky pen. Ideally, you should just consume the entire tin shortly after opening. Yes, he does say that. And congratulations, you now have ruined your appetite and you don't want to eat caviar for 14 months because you followed Ryan Sutton's advice and you spent $150 on a full tin of caviar and consumed the whole thing in one sitting because you didn't want it to go bad. Damn, I wish there were places where you could just go and get like a taste of it and also get like a few things to go with it. And like, I'm not really good at cooking, so I wish they would also prepare the sides to go with it and then do the dishes and then like serve alcohol so I could drink while I was having my caviar. Oh, wait. 
Don't worry. He's got advice for eating out, too. Quote, so even if a chef sends out a composed caviar course, say a dollop of caviar on a small potato or tater tot, and advises to eat it in one bite, feel free to ignore those instructions and a few enjoy a few beads by themselves. End quote. Right, because just like you, Ryan, most people get sent caviar by the chef. This is great advice to make sure they're consuming it properly. I've spent enough time on this show ripping this piece apart. Do you have any thoughts on eating caviar? Uh, do you like when I take on Ryan Sutton's writing? I get a little bit uh, sassy in this show when I do that. Do you hate when I take on Ryan Sutton's writing? Please let me know. I'm personally just continually amazed that this kind of writing gets greenlit to get published by a network like Eater. Next up, a project that I didn't see coming, but I'm not that surprised that it exists. Adam Platt published a piece titled, quote, Introducing New York's New Star-Free Restaurant and Bar Ratings, end quote. And it's actually great. I actually really, really support this project. So he says, quote, There were already too many types of star systems in the crowded firmament. Everyone knew that the most venerable, influential star systems skewed in favor of a certain snooty category of continental, gourmet, and expensive style. At the expense of more inclusive, equally worthy genres of dining, hello Michelin, readers would fixate on the stars instead of on the carefully crafted reviews, end quote. And he also touches on the changing dining behavior. Quote, for the traditional star-centric critic, however, in this changed landscape, excellent or special trip destinations were no longer grand French dining palaces. They were raucous downtown noodle bars and ramshackle pizza destinations out of the wilds of Bushwick, places that snooty Manhattan gourmets would never have dreamed of visiting just a few years earlier, end quote. And then he continues to ask a few questions based on a problem. Quote, suddenly, we critics who were used to our, do our doling stars to the kind of grandiose white tablecloth establishments that rarely opened around the city anymore were forced to grapple with a whole new set of naughty questions and criteria. Is there such a thing as over-attentive service? Should a popular restaurant be docked a star if, God forbid, it doesn't take reservations? What is more star-worthy in this comfort comfort obsessed aged a lavish though rarely seen plated serving of dover sole or the world's finest taco end quote and then he breaks down the new project new york magazine aka grub street's thousand best and he d explains how it works quote our rating scale from one that is significant of unfortunate to 100 that is significant of nirvana, is designed to take into account not just the styles of dining or categories of restaurants, but all of the hundreds of tangible and intangible factors that add up to an excellent or terrible dining experience. Price is important, of course, but high cost is not a mandate for the highest marks. A world-class deli can sit along a top-flight tasting room. Astonishing pizza will be given the same weight as life-changing pho, superlative ka soy, cow soy, or the most elaborate flight of caviar at the most pretentious restaurant in Midtown, end quote. So it's out. It's live. You can go ahead and creep the list now. It is 100% available. I did my own poking around the site. And what's really nice with this 1,000 best list is the fact that it provides a lot of value if you know exactly what you'd like to eat. So for example, I went ahead and clicked on Katz's Deli. It got a 90 score out of 100, uh, which is puts it in the excellent category. And it says... The subtitle for Katz's Deli is, quote, New York City's oldest delicatessen and also its best, end quote. So in addition to showing the score, the name of the restaurant, that little subtitle, it also shows the address, what they serve and what they're known for, a phone number so you can call them, uh, a website, a few tags, 
that you can search through their system. So things like takeout and celeb spotting are for Katz's Deli. There's also a brief story behind the place, and they outsource that to different writers. Uh, they share the drink options, the noise level, and then probably the coolest feature for a city like New York and a listicle like this is a plan B section. So it, bas it basically says, try this place and this place if you can't get into the place that you searched for. And for Katz's Deli, it's uh, Black Seed Bagels and Meatball Shop. Both have scores of 80 and 79, respectively. So they're trying to get as close to the number that you looked for, I would assume, while also staying in those categories, which is why each place is tagged in specific ways. So as with most awards, they are subjective, they are prone to corruption and bias, and they are limited to the frequency by which the reviewers can visit the places to account for changes in those places. That's where I see a lot of the problems that come with um, a lot of these awards and listicles. So changing the breadth, though, of the scoring scale from 3 to 100 for Michelin, or 4 to 100, right? Four stars is the highest you can get for uh, New York Times, and taking that to 100, I think it totally solves a lot of those problems. Um, and I'm personally curious to see if it catches on. As with most of these projects, I will share my opinion on that. When you get, when you can get the chefs to care about striving for the higher rankings, or if you can get the consumer to change their behavior based on your list, that's when I think it catches on. And that's when I think it's going to get interesting with this thousand best list. Um, People had tried in the past to name restaurants the best restaurant in the world, right? But when San Pellegrino came along and made people actually reference things like, I ate at the number four restaurant in the world, that's when chefs started to care. And then I think it went the other direction too. Like when chefs got told, oh, you're the third best restaurant in the world, then they started to get some more confidence or start to strive for it. Like it's it's a cycle, right? I think if it, produ if it provides an ego boost or a business boost, then it will catch on. And I wish that people were more transparent with how they awarded the points, especially with a, a guide like this, because they're that's their only thing, right? It's not like you can say, well, with a two-star, it's uh, exceptional food in its category, right? Uh, or if it's three, it's worth a journey, right? That is, that is it, it's still subjective, but it, it shares a little bit about behind why. I think with... Um, a system like this, when he actually says there are these intangible things, that makes it not so, I don't know, like, I I, I just wish that, uh, like, in a, a good example of a system that's really open, and they share exactly how they rank things, is a white guide. I've covered them before, they're based in Scandinavia, um, but they're also a point-based system. They I think they go from 1 to 100, I want to say, um, but they're very good at breaking down, like, service is this amount of points, and atmosphere is this amount of points, and food is this amount of points. Um, and depending on how you perform in all those categories, that determines your score. So I got to say, it's much more in line with the kind of flavor and execution video I put out a few months back. I'm all for a more like level playing field and judging restaurants and dining experiences based on things other than the cost and other than the stiffness, the stuffiness. Um, so we will 100% see where this goes. I'm interested to see what happens with this list. So last up, I have to share some of my favorite food photography of the year. Bonjwing Lee has completed his documentation of Meadow Woods' 12 Days of Christmas. He shares that he takes between 1,000 and 1,500 photos per day, and of those, maybe 20 to 40 make it into a gallery on Flickr, which is pretty insane uh, for that kind of curation. But if you're into reading the kind of behind the scenes on what a typical day looks like when you've got a three Michelin-starred chef coming to visit and do a guest chef dinner, it is 100% worth the read especially because um, a lot of these tickets were very expensive this year. Like, what goes into preparing for an $850 a person 
dinner. Uh, I also really enjoy reading Bondwing's writing, so it's not just like a little bulleted list of stuff. He really uh, goes into it with his very eloquent style of writing. I won't personally do it any justice by quoting it here, but it's a great thing for you to bookmark to read either on your day off or after listening to this. Please don't read it now if you're driving and listening to the show. That is bad. Please don't do that. Uh, Check out the show notes when you get a second. It is linked up there. Uh, last up industry style. We normally have direct answer. We are actually live on Instagram right now. So I would just to say thanks to everybody that's joined in. If anybody has a question, if you've listened this far in the show and you're still here, I would love to answer whatever questions you might have. So in the meantime, I'm going to go into the non-industry story and give everybody a chance to ask whatever they want to ask. And then I will answer it, uh, after this little bit. So the non-industry story is actually one that I produced, I published a two-hour long video that accompanies a 6,700-word article that I wrote called My 2019 Playbook. Some of you have read it. Um, Some of you are a little intimidated probably because it is so long, and I I truly respect your time, so I totally understand why you haven't uh, interacted with it yet. But uh, just to give you some uh, context, I go really deep in the article on topics like health and social media and travel, and uh, there's a bunch of really interesting tips towards the end, which if nothing else, you should just scroll down to the bottom and read those. But it's a piece that I genuinely enjoyed writing because I was able to articulate a lot of the stuff that isn't necessarily like on brand for the type of content that I want to produce in more digestible uh, YouTube video form, right? So it was kind of a way for me to vent and get all that out, right? Like all these things that I'm really passionate about and that I'm learning outside of uh, content creation, uh, I don't share it with that many people. And so to be able to put it all out, um, um, and these things that I'm learning about and a couple of you reaching out and saying, you know, how do I start my own podcast? Or, you know, I want to start making videos. What would you suggest that I do? I don't normally speak on that too much on YouTube. So it was nice for me to be able to create something where I kind of, I lay it all out there. I don't think that I'm the end all be all of information, but I'm also learning and I'm in the trenches. So I think that, um, whatever I can share and bring value to you through, um, I'm all about it. Right. So it's a 27 minute read. Uh, it's on medium and it's linked up. So if you want to spend, you know, kind of a cup of coffee or your lunch, uh, learning about where I'm going to spend my time in 2019. It's all out there for you. So does anybody have an Instagram question? We should scroll back through and see, um, who's got something to say. Lots of thumbs up, lots of waves. Love it. Love it. Love it. Half Indian and a chef too. That's awesome. Um, wages should be properly paid by the owners, not by tips. I a hundred percent agree with that. Let's see. What else do we got here? sweet deal um yeah if nobody has any other questions that will do it for this week's show episode 87 if you have any questions please shoot them to me on twitter if you have stories you want covered um always dm me through instagram and hashtag the emulsion so i can find them i am of course super super pumped for 2019 i hope you are as well thank you for listening roll the outro Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me